Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode. Matt, how are you this lovely day? Not doing too bad. How are you? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. It's good to see you back here. You've been out and about and just traveling the world, and so uh, it's nice to get behind the mics again here. It definitely is. Yeah, hopefully things are a little less hectic for you, and we can get back to doing what we love here, getting behind the mic. And you know, to remind everyone out there of our tech tips, we've got our uh, ES and viscosity out online so far. We'll put the link in the show notes for our YouTube channel, and hopefully here coming down the pipeline, we've got a few more. Hey, Matt? Yes, it's just they take an incredible amount of time to put together of any reasonable quality. Right. So uh, we hope to build up a little bit of a log and then we can leak a few periodically. But for the time being, everyone be patient. Yeah, yeah. No, we're all about quality over quantity, aren't we? For now. I'm kidding. Always. (laughs) Always, yeah. So, uh, well, look, if you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and do us a huge favor to take a few minutes and leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Any feedback is welcome and appreciated, good or bad. Uh, you know, and again, we'd like to thank all the faithful listeners out there. Uh, we always receive, uh, you know, actually quite a bit of feedback on LinkedIn, just messages from folks out in the field or in the office, recent graduates just, uh, you know, telling us about, um, you know, their experience with the show and whether they're learning something or, you know, they just like to hear Matt and I babble about things behind the mic here, which, you know, is quite comical. But nonetheless, uh, we had a, a, a listener write a message here not too long ago and uh, was was kind of curious about diving into the different components that make up an oil-based mud system, you know, also known as uh, known as an invert emulsion system. So, Matt, I figured we'd break down an oil-based mud system. What do you think? Can't hurt. Awesome. Well, let's start off with the most, you know, you know the the major components, which would be your base fluids within the system. So, why don't right. you you know explain what that is and uh, maybe the few de- uh, differences between uh, the ones that we have. Okay, so um, base oils are tricky. I mean, we want we want oil as our continuous phase. Basically, we want the formation to see that oil so that we don't have interactions where, for example, a clay could swell in the presence of water. We don't want it to see that. That's kind of the part of the beauty of oil-based mud, and we've talked a little bit about fluid selection in the past. But that oil phase can be a number of different oils, actually, and you could go from diesel, which is quite common. Back in the day, they even used crude oil. Um, going all the way down to even more refined oils. And we'll need to do an episode just about base oils, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but you hear about synthetics, uh, um, mineral oils, that kind of thing. So, um, you know, diesel has some components that could be, you know, less friendly to the environment, that sort of thing. I think you know just by kind of smelling it. Sure. Um, and there are all the way up to like food grade quality and plant-based oils you could use. Uh, And they have some limitations. One of the biggest drivers is really cost, which is why diesel is so popular. It's readily available um, with the right protocols and health and safety mitigations. It appears that, you know, those risks can be managed. But, for example, in an offshore environment, a very sensitive area, um, you could go to something that costs more money but has a lot of those harmful components either removed or they're just not even present. Um, So the base oil is kind of where it all begins. and there's physical properties of that. There's uh, the inherent viscosity to the base oil, which 
affects uh, sometimes how it reacts to temperature. Sometimes the base oil can actually be a blend of a couple of different oils. Um, one thing to note, you're probably not going to see two oil-based muds, two different types at the same mud plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few places we do that, but uh, for example, in the Northeast, some places require a synthetic, some places accept diesel, and it's so much cheaper to use diesel that where we're allowed to, our customers want that. Right. But when you're using that really pristine base oil, you don't want anything that's used in the diesel to come into contact. Yeah. So in that case, of course, um, we got to keep all that stuff separate. You're basically running two mud plants right. in the same location. Yeah. And not to get, I mean, again, we should do a, an episode just on base oils, but these base oils, you know, they originate anywhere, right? Like they can come from overseas. They can come here dom- from here domestically. I mean, uh, really, we, we get them from almost anywhere in the world, right? Right. And, and a lot of them, it sort of depends on what's available in the environmental regulations. So offshore Gulf of Mexico, a lot of the regulations are benchmarked to IO1618 or internal olefin with a C16, C18 carbon. Um, and so that's what everybody uses. But you might go somewhere else across the world and they'll use a different base oil that's readily available at the refinery there. Um, so, and, and like I said, they can go back and forth. Um, but a lot of times I have a good idea of what base oil they're using based upon where the base oil source is. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. yeah, they're, you kind of get an idea once you've dealt with a lot of them where, where you're likely drilling just because you hear they're using a particular base oil. Makes sense. So, you know, obviously oil based muds, you have your oils, but, uh, interestingly enough, there's also water. Why don't you talk about the water phase within an oil based mud? So, uh, we could, th- this is where we get the invert emulsion term, right? So we know oil and water don't mix. We know an emulsion is a mixture of two things that n- normally wouldn't mix. And going completely against nature or opposite of what you would normally see with an emulsion is when you have water droplets in the internal phase. Um, and we'll, we'll explain how that works when we get to the actual emulsifier component. But um, think of these little droplets dispersed throughout the oil. Um, and the idea is that they are in the non-continuous phase, which means the formation really isn't seeing um, those that water component. And usually it's brine. So the internal phase, uh, we've mentioned using 25% by weight calcium chloride um, as the internal phase. And the idea there is that even though these, these water droplets aren't seen, you can actually have osmosis. You can have water go from that internal phase or from the formation back and forth. Um, and that salinity is typical of a lot of common shales where the water won't, they kind of match each other mm-hmm. in a lot of places, so they don't really want to move. And I, I know we've talked about that in a, a previous episode as well. Sure. Um, okay. So, and then within the water, there's certain salinities, right? Sure. And you can vary it and you can use different brines. Calcium chloride is cheap. It's very common. Um, it, it, you know, works. Sometimes you hear about sodium chloride in the internal phase. Um, right. There's, there's other ways to, to skin that cat, but. I got gotcha. you. Um, yeah. So, so you've got your water and you've mm-hmm. got oil, which mm-hmm. both of them don't mix. And for anyone out there, you know, salad dressing, perfect example. Mm-hmm. So how in the world do we tie these things together without, you know, letting them separate? Well, I'm glad you asked, Justin, <laughs> because uh, we use surfactants. Um, and one type of surfactant that we use, we also call an emulsifier. Um, and the whole idea of an emulsifier is... These surfactants, they have one side that really likes oil and one side that really likes water. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- what happens is you get enough of these to adhere to a water droplet, um, and they basically create this, um, this surface 
And so you get, uh, think of a, a sphere, um, the surfactants, uh, the tail is all facing inwards. Um, and that's the side that likes water. And then the side that likes oil is facing outwards. And that's the part that makes the droplet readily disperse in the oil. Mm. Um, and so an emulsifier, when you think about making your mud, it's, it's predominantly intended to make sure those water droplets stay nice and dispersed. Right. Okay. So you obviously, so you've got your, your water, you've got your oil, you've got something to tie it all together called an emulsifier. Um, you know, but you also, you know, we're, we're continuously adding products to change the different properties. You're drilling, you're adding weight material. Even though you have a significant amount of oil in there, you still need something else to help coat and oil wet the solid. So why don't we talk a little bit about wetting agent? Sure. So a wetting agent is another surfactant, somewhat close in relationship to an emulsifier, actually, but designed to actually have an affinity for those water-wet solids. So those could be weight material, drill cuttings, um, but your formations generally are inherently water wet. Um, and if you think about it, you know, if, if you ever want to do a demonstration for yourself, just keep dumping, you know, bayrite in a jar, not on your rig in, in the mud, yeah. <laughs> but just keep, keep dumping bayrite into mud and yeah, it'll get thick of course, cause there's a lot of solids, but you also see it turn kind of dull. Um, and what's happening is that wetting agent is getting starved. Your fluid would get really thick. Um, and when we've talked about SAG, there have been stories of people not adding enough wetting agent. And um, then the, the um, system, you get this material little clump together in this oil continuous phase. Yeah. It's sticking together and fall out. Right. So wetting agent is critical. And an emulsifier will provide some, some oil wetting, um, but it's not its primary function, um, which is why you always need to add wetting agent as well. Um, and you need to add wedging agent commensurate with the amount of solids that you have. Okay. So kind of, uh, I'd like to back up a little bit and, and I know it, this actually ties all these three together, but historically uh, you would typically see, you know, a primary and a secondary emulsifier. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of companies now uh, are introducing or have had around for quite a while, including you know, us, but you know, they call it a single emulsifier package. So, mm-hmm. you know, can you kind of briefly explain the difference as to why, you know, now we're able to use one, packaged versus a single and a double or you know primary and secondary emulsifier i mean i think it's just that the chemistry has gotten a little more precise and a little better um you know at the end of the day a lot of these emulsifiers are are blends of things to kind of optimize for certain characteristics um so a secondary emulsifier might have ultimately provided a little bit of you know, a a characteristic that provides better thermal stability or better tolerance to water or something along those lines. Um, And sometimes it's even for cost. If you don't necessarily need things in the same ratio, you separate them out, you can kind of manage that application. Mm. Um, So it's, uh, you know, those those are certainly factors. Um, I think nowadays, you know, you can get things blended to your needs pretty specifically as a supplier. Gotcha. Um, and in light of that, there's just a lot more opportunity for customization mm-hmm. versus I think if you go back years ago, um, you were kind of pulling from similar streams and it just wasn't tailored in the same way. So gotcha. there's a, a rougher application, I would say. Gotcha. Well, we, so we have evolved in the drilling fluid. <laughs> um, I want to believe that. Yeah. Uh, and if anybody, if, if there's anybody who... Um, has some good stories about developing those or maybe a little bit more history into that. 
that's sort of my rough understanding of things. Sure. Um, but if someone could add a little color to that, listeners, get to it. Nice. No, yeah. we, we uh, certainly would appreciate that. Okay, so you know you, you have your emulsifier, you've tied the oil and the water together, you've got your wetting agent in there for when you're drilling and making sure everything uh, is, continues to be oil wet. Uh, but now we need to adjust property, yield mm-hmm. point, low end rheology. Uh, so, you know, in a water-based mud, you're adding gel, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and some, maybe some polymers. Uh, so why don't you describe some of the, the components to adjusting properties for rheology in an oil-based mud? Sure. Um, so, you know, one that we talk about periodically is, is organoclay or organophilic clay. And this is, this can be actually bentonite, in fact, that is treated with an amine uh, so that it actually likes oil. So it, it disperses readily and provides viscosity, what we call yielding. Um, that'll give you some of that yield point, some of your low-end properties. The other interesting thing about, about it is because it's got a lot of surface area, these are pretty fine particles, uh, it actually helps stabilize your emulsion a little bit too. Um, and if you think about these little water droplets, provide a little bit of viscosity as well. Mm. Um, you know, taking that a, a step further, uh, we've talked about clay-free systems and those viscosifying additives that typically act on solids and kind of build a network and help, you know, give it a little bit of body. Um, uh, there are some polymers that will do the same thing. Um, sometimes they are just surfactants, uh, but those are kind of your clay-free or, you know, non-clay viscosifiers. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, on the organophilic clay, uh, we see different types where some are designed to actually mitigate sag. Mm. Others will kind of provide that yield point element. So we might add, um, you know, one of our products, AES Vis LS, to as a you know sag mitigating agent. But at the same time, we'd add our AES Vis Three, which is another you know clay organophilic clay, mm-hmm. um, to provide some some viscosity, give you some yield point. That makes sense. So in one uh, uh, chemical that we typically add to an oil-based mud, which it's funny because, you know, when you first hear of this uh, product right away in myself, I think margaritas, adding what we know as lime. Um, yes. Quite a bit different in the drilling fluids application. You're not adding, you know, lime juice, but rather calcium hydroxide, which is right. also known as lime. So describe where that fits into the mix. First, I'm glad you clarified that you're not adding lime to your margaritas. <laughs> um, but uh, so lime does a couple of pretty important things, actually. So one is a lot of emulsifiers, although not all of them, uh, form their emulsion through calcium-based soaps. So this is why you may, if you're making fresh mud, you might add five pounds per barrel of lime, and then you do your titrations on your mud check, and you only have three pounds of excess lime. Mm. Well, a lot of this lime is getting tied up, or the calcium is getting tied up as this emulsion forms. So a lot of your um, a lot of your emulsifier packages do require lime just for for that purpose. Gotcha. Um, and when you add some emulsifier, you may see your excess lime go down. The other thing is it provides some alkalinity, um, so it raises the pH of that brine phase, uh, and that can be significant. Uh, I, I mean, you encounter some acid gas or some H two S because if it starts depleting that calcium, it can destabilize your emulsion. It can create lots of other problems. Um, so that's why we always like to carry a, a bit of excess, um, and sense. certainly even more if we're encountering something that's acidic. Gotcha. So moving on to uh, something that's extremely important in a water-based mud is your, you know, your, uh, your primary, I guess, 
resource for well wellbore inhibition would be to have a tight fluid loss, and uh, you would add things like polyacrylamide or you know whether it be lignite, uh, things of that nature, other black powders. In an oil based mud, it's it's uh, you know we rather than doing an API filter press to get fluid loss, we do what we know as HPHT fluid loss. Uh, so what are some of the products that we can add into a oil-based mud that would help lower that HTHP? So um, a lot of them are materials that like oil that readily disperse. Gilsonite is a really popular one. Um, and uh, there's amine-treated lignite, which doesn't really perform as well and seems to have fallen out of favor. Um, I think it was, the only reason it was in favor is it was cheap. Mm. Um, when you get to synthetic-based systems bear in mind that you probably don't want these types of things um and so you basically use what's kind of like a precursor for tires okay um interestingly enough um but these are all small particles that'll pack in with clay tighten up your fluid loss um you know there are certain considerations for temperature for example if you're using an amine treated product and it's too high a temperature for an amine you know above 250 275 you're probably going to have some issues so you may need to use something else um, gilsonite has a melting point if you're drilling a really really hot well um, it may not contribute to fluid loss it may in fact just make your rheology go crazy um, if it melts um, so there's certain properties you look at at extreme high temperatures uh, but you know all in all the combination of the the water droplets which provides in essence solids because they've got a surface tension to them mm -hmm. um, the Fluid loss control additive in your organoclay forms a really tight network. And so if, uh, originally, if you ran you know, an API fluid loss, you'd have zero. That's why they never ask you to do it in oil-based mud. Yeah. Um, and then the, uh, uh, with the HPHT, you would, um, you know, obviously more extreme conditions that you could actually get a reading. Right. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I, I always go on this tirade, you know, the, the reason that you you're supposed to double your HPHT fluid loss is the idea that, well, it's the same size paper. It's half the size paper as an API. So you're sort of getting an equivalent. Um, that sort of drives me nuts because I feel like, <laughs> you know, I mean, as, as people in the mud business, we round up and, you know, make some pretty rough guesses enough that do we really need to double a number that's got enough inherent error to it that <laughs> it just... It, I, I wish that that's one thing that always really kind of bothered me. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, all in all, you can get pretty tight fluid loss, as we know, with oil-based mud, which is why it's great to mitigate against stuck pipe, for example. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So last but not least, uh, from, you know, the base components of a system is our weighting material. So mm -hmm. uh, naturally, we have barite. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously, if we want to get, you know, on the heavier scale of things, we can introduce hematite. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, does, does barite behave differently in an oil-based mud than a water-based mud or is it same, same? I mean, I'd say it's a solid, uh, you know, one of the things I, I guess probably a, more tied into a property, which we probably need to do an episode on this too. We got a long list. We, we do. We've got oh, yeah. material for years, guys. <laughs> yes. Um, but you think about, uh, your, your oil water ratio. Well, one of the main reasons that you would increase your oil content is to disperse your solids. Mm. Um, so in the same way, when we get very heavy water-based muds, we add a dispersant. Um, here, I need to keep that bayrite dispersed in the oil phase. So that's why, you know, your 90-10 oil-water ratio 
when I hear that, I know you're probably running a pretty heavy mud, right? Or a really light mud, and you have no choice because of, yeah, y- you know, your your brine phase or, or what have you. Or it's extremely cold. Or it's extremely cold, like in Canada. Yes, something <laughs> we like that. Ninety ten all the time up there. At least they did when I was up. Yeah, it sounds expensive. Yeah, we like um, to make money. Hey, and there's not very many rigs drilling. You have to do what you can. Well, I was I was at the SP <laughs> conference last week, and I I understand. Yeah, that was up in Calgary, and uh, that was yeah. for ATCG, ATCE, the ATC. annual technical conference and exhibition. Very nice. Um, yes. Uh, so I, I mean, really, it's it's managing that dispersion of solids, which is why you would go to a higher specific gravity product like hematite if you really got into a bind. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you know, behavior wise, no, it's just the the effect on those properties, right? Yeah. And one thing to note, and tying it kind of back into you know, why we add wetting agent, extremely important when you're adding a lot of barite into a mud. I remember being offshore and we were make, mixing, you know, 19 pound slugs using barite, mm-hmm. and uh, you had to have the exact amount, you know, of everything, or else it would just become so thick with solids. Uh, and we were up, I think, close to a 90 10, but even then, it got, you know, extremely, extremely thick. So having the exact right amount of wetting agent helped thin it back enough to where you could actually pump it. So uh, very important when you have that much solids in the mud. Because I forget the concentration, you know, pound per barrel wise of solids that was in the mud. But it was just like, it, it, it was, you know, looking at it on paper was like, wow, you know, that's a lot of solids. But then you look at it and it looked, it looked like a solid blob of mud. Yeah. Um. So, you know, very interesting as you get up in those higher mud weights, how your mud is, you know, how it can look and how important, you know, keeping everything oil wet is. Sure. Well, and, and we, you know, a lot of the cases we hear about is, um, you know, up in the Northeast, uh, Belmont, Monroe County, where they hit these pressure zones and they have to wait up very, very quickly, and everybody's kind of scrambling. Um, we uh, we've been successful in picking up a lot of work because you know the competition wasn't ready for that, and and part of it is getting bayrite trucks moving, but the other part of it was they weren't adding wet, enough wetting agent, mm-hmm. and so the the bayrite was coming off of the shakers as they were trying to wait up. Yeah, um, and it's you know it's those high pressure situations where you've got to look back and remember. If, you know, when you've got smooth sailing at 14 pounds per gallon and you need to be at 16 in a heartbeat, um, that's when you've got to have your instincts on that. I need to add, I need to add weight material. I need to add wetting agent. I need to add oil. Yeah. Um, and I need to add the right amounts in the right proportion to make sure we wait up as quickly as possible. Right. So yeah, the last thing you want to do is, and it's somewhat counterintuitive, especially for whether it's new mud engineers or, or new uh, company representatives on site is, you know, oh, we got to wait up. Let's cut the dilution. When in fact you actually need to, you know, if keep it the same or even increase it depending on how heavy you are going and how much weighting material you're adding. So, uh, yeah, don't don't neglect, uh, you know, dilution and wetting agent when you're trying to add solids because you, you could go the other way fast, and that's no bueno. No bueno. <laughs> no. So, uh, man, I think we've covered most of it. Um, I know. Well, I guess we could talk a little bit. You know, there's other, uh, you know, products we can add, whether it's for lubricity. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, some sort of asphaltine, uh, but for the most part, we've covered the base components and is there anything else you wanted to touch on? No, I don't think so. I just like to go th- a little bit through the nuts and bolts. I hope, uh, you know, I know we have a lot of mud engineers listening. Hopefully it's, this is informative and not too mundane if you've been around for a while, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe it spurs up a good question or, or a follow-up uh, more into the specifics of these components for another episode. Awesome. Well, folks, we'll, uh, You'll hear from us again next week. Thanks again for listening. You can visit our website, aesfluids.com, uh, flat, uh, front slash flowline podcast. 
And if you have any questions or you just want to reach out and uh, tell a good story, please reach out to flowlinepodcast at aesfluids.com. We'll also put this link in the show notes. Awesome. Thanks again, everyone. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.